Welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. Welcome to our second episode of our mini-series on Orion Pictures. If you are new to the Film Jerk Podcast, make sure that you listen to episode 10, our first episode on the history of the company. You may also want to listen to episode 9 about Hemdale Pictures. For more details about one of the films we'll be touching on in this episode, The Terminator. Now, before we get started with this week's episode, we need to give a shout-out to two great film people we lost since our last episode. On April 15th, we lost both the great character actor Brian Dennehy and master cinematographer Alan Davio. Dennehy was one of our greats. He could literally do anything. He could be the good guy or the bad guy. He could be sweet and he could be sour, welcoming and menacing. For example, in a three-week span in the summer of 1985, He starred as a good alien in Ron Howard's Cocoon and an evil corrupt sheriff in Lawrence Kasdan's Silverado. He also worked on several films for Orion Pictures. Last episode, we mentioned two films that came out within weeks of each other in October of 1982, Split Image and First Blood. And I had completely forgotten he had also been featured as the friendly bartender Don in 10. We'll be spending a decent amount of time in Dennehy's filmography in the 80s during the course of this series. Alan Davio might not be a name you immediately recognize, but you know his work. His first major film was Steven Spielberg's E.T., and he also shot The Color Purple and Empire of the Sun for the director. Those three movies accounted for three of his five Oscar nominations for Best Cinematography, the other two coming from back-to-back Barry Levinson films, Avalon and Bugsy. Davio would only shoot one Orion feature, the John Schlesinger film The Falcon and the Snowman, which we'll be highlighting later in this episode. When Spielberg heard of Davio's passing, he said of his friend, He was a wonderful artist, but his warmth and humanity were as powerful as his lens. He was a singular talent and a beautiful human being. I would also suggest checking out Arnold Glassman, Todd McCarthy, and Stuart Samuel's exceptional 1992 documentary, Vision of Light, probably the best documentary about the art of cinematography, which features several illuminating, pun very much intended, segments with Davio about his profession. You can find a copy of the movie on YouTube, as it's not currently available for streaming. When we left Orion Pictures at the end of 1982... They had just released First Blood into theaters. As 1983 started, they would not find the same kind of success at the Oscars they had before. After going one for two and two for eight in the previous two years, their 1982 films would be completely shut out of nominations. Their first movie of 1983 didn't arrive in theaters until April 15th. Lone Wolf McQuaid was your standard-issue Chuck Norris action film, with David Carradine playing the bad guy. Chuck Norris films were never going to be big hits nor critical favorites, but the man kept working because his movies were rather cheap to make and they could regularly churn a decent profit. Lone Wolf McQuaid would be one of the slight misfires during this time frame. The $5 million movie would open at number one, with $4.3 million from 1,221 theaters, but it would only end up grossing about $12.25 million after four weeks of release. Not enough to turn a profit, but also not enough to stop trying to make Chuck Norris movies. Right after Lone Wolf McQuaid was released, Norris would sign a lucrative deal with Canon Films to make a series of action movies for them, 
which he made plenty of, and we'll get to those in our canon film series in the future. But we're not done with Chuck Norris yet here either. We'll talk about another movie of his in our next episode. May 13th would see the arrival of Jim McBride's Breathless, an American remake of Jean-Luc Godard's classic first feature film. In Godard's film, a French petty thief seeks help from his American aspiring journalist girlfriend after he's killed a policeman while trying to steal a car. In the remake, an American petty thief seeks help from his French aspiring architect girlfriend after he's killed a policeman while trying to steal a car. In the original, John Paul Belmondo is the epitome of cool. In the remake, Richard Gere is the epitome of swaggering sexiness. In the original, Gene Seberg is an early example of the manic pixie dream girl. In the remake, Valerie Kaprisky is sexy in an unobtainable way. The original is effortless style, the remake working too hard to be stylish. The original helped change cinema and is still being studied 60 years later. The remake is all but forgotten less than 40 years later. Like many a movie of its day that takes place in Los Angeles, Breathless is fun for me to watch, to see all the places that are long since gone from my childhood. But if you're not from Los Angeles and didn't live here around that time frame, you don't even have that going for you. All that's left is some quick shots of Richard Gere's dong and a killer soundtrack featuring the likes of Link Ray, X, Jerry Lee Lewis, King Sonny Ade, and Elvis Presley. The film wasn't quite the bomb history seems to suggest it was. The $7.5 million movie grossed $4.4 million in 1,161 theaters its opening weekend, on its way to grossing nearly $20 million over seven weeks of tracking. Hemdale Pictures, the subject of our Episode 9, produced a number of films for Orion Pictures before starting their own distribution company. The first one of those collaborations was Yellowbeard. How does this sound for you? Peter Boyle, Peter Cook... Marty Feldman, Madeline Kahn, James Mason, Spike Milligan, Cheech and Chong, and Graham Chapman, John Cleese, and Eric Idle from Monty Python, all starring in a pirate comedy co-written by Chapman and Cook. Now that sounds like it should be one of the funniest damn movies ever made. Am I right? But it's not. It's really not. Outside of Mason, you have nine of the funniest comedic actors working at the same time, and there's barely a laugh in the film's entire 96-minute running time. Yellowbeard would be the final appearance for Milligan and Feldman on screen, the latter having actually died during filming in Mexico with only one scene left to film with him, his character's death scene. Now how bad is this film? John Cleese said he only did the film because of his brotherly love for his Python cohort Chapman, even though he found the script to be one of the worst he's ever read. Eric Idle said it just might be the worst film he's ever been involved in, and he's not wrong. And audiences knew it was a stinker. Its opening weekend in 761 theaters would only see about a million and a half in ticket sales, and Orion would stop tracking it after only three weeks, and about $4.3 million total. Their final release, through the Warner Brothers distribution network, Woody Allen Zelig, would open in New York City on July 15th. 
immaterial Woody Allen the person, Zelig would be his greatest work on a technical level. There's a great article by Janet Maslin in the August 1st, 1983 edition of the New York Times that goes into great detail in how Allen and his team were able to insert Allen's chameleon character, Leonard Zelig, into so many historical moments, which, if you're interested in the film, you should read. Suffice to say that there's never any doubt in your mind that you're watching real footage from the 1920s and 30s, even when it's just Woody and Mia Farrow as his psychiatrists. It's one of his top five best films all time, but audiences kind of shrugged off all the hype about the special effects. After opening to more than $60,000 on just six screens, the film would only gross about $11.8 million after 15 weeks, while never playing on more than 245 screens at any time. The first film Orion would release through their own distribution apparatus arrived in theaters a week later on July 22nd. Class was one of a bevy of older women, younger men sex comedies that seemingly arrived in theaters every week during this time in history. Class could be conceivably called the first Brat Pack movie, since it stars Rob Lowe, Andrew McCarthy, John Cusack, and Alan Ruck. And maybe there was a different movie filmed, since Rob Lowe's parents are played by Academy Award winner Cliff Robertson and Jacqueline Bissett, but the end result was not very classy. Roger Ebert would give the film two stars out of four, calling it a prep school retread of The Graduate. But audiences expecting to see some prime nudity from Bissett and newcomer Virginia Madsen in her first movie made the film a hit. The $7 million movie would gross $4.55 million in 839 theaters opening weekend, ending with about $21.6 million after five weeks of release. In a weird bit of irony, Class was produced by Martin Ransahoff, the co-founder of Filmway Pictures, the company Orion would purchase in order to start their own film distribution network, although Ransahoff would leave that company 25 years before Orion purchased them. Now, in addition to their regular Orion distribution label, they would also have a secondary label for specialty foreign film releases called Orion Classics. Now, 20th Century Fox would have Fox Classics, Columbia Pictures would have Triumph Films, and we'll cover those labels another time. Orion Classics would have their first major release on July 29th with the Eric Romer comedy Pauline at the Beach. Pauline, a 15-year-old Parisian, goes on a road trip with her older cousin Marion where both fall in and out of love with a variety of boys and men in a coastal village in northwest France. Although it would be her fourth movie with Romer in a five-year period, the movie would make a minor worldwide star out of the statuesque blonde Ariel Dombas. Sadly, the box office returns for the film are not readily available, but the film would mark an American resurgence in Romer's career. Rodney Dangerfield would not become a star until his late 40s, and he would be featured in his first big movie, 1980's Caddyshack, which we talked about in the previous episode, at the age of 59. Of the 14 films he was featured in, there were three that could be considered hit films, and incidentally, all three of them were Orion Pictures. The second of those three, Easy Money, would be released on August 19th. This time, Dangerfield would not only star in the film, he'd have a hand in writing the screenplay, 
alongside comedian Dennis Blair and former National Lampoon writer P.J. O'Rourke. Here he plays Monty Capuletti, a real louse of a person who stands to inherit $10 million from his mother-in-law's estate if he can stop drinking and gambling and smoking pot for a year. Supporting Dangerfield in his first lead role are Joe Pesci, Geraldine Fitzgerald, Jennifer Jason Lee, Jeffrey Jones, Tom Newman, and the late criminally underrated Tyler Negrin. It's a mildly funny movie, not in the league of Caddyshack or his other hit movie we'll be mentioning in the next episode, but it would do good business. Opening on 1,130 screens, Easy Money would gross a respectable $5.85 million on its way to a $29.3 million total. September 16th would see the release of the very strange sci-fi spoof, but not really sci-fi, Strange Invaders. It would be the second produced screenplay for future Oscar winner Bill Condon and the second collaboration with director Michael Laughlin after 1980's Strange Behavior. Many of the actors from that first movie, including Oscar winner Louise Fletcher, Fiona Lewis, Dan Shore, and Day Young, would also star in Strange Invaders. New to the Strange series was star Paul Lamette, who discovers his ex-wife is actually an alien, and he must rescue his half-human, half-alien daughter from being taken back to the alien's home planet. There was supposed to be a third Strange movie by Condon and Laughlin, a World War II spy thriller sci-fi spoof called The Adventures of Philip Strange, should Strange Invaders become a hit. The $5.5 million Strange Invaders would only gross about $655,000 when it opened in 274 theaters, and Orion would stop tracking the film after two weeks and a $1.4 million gross. The Adventures of Philip Strange would never be filmed. October 20th would see Orion Classics send Carlos Sora's flamenco-tinted adaptation of Carmen into select theaters. Sara keeps the story simple, with modern dancers reenacting in their personal lives the tragic love affair within Bizet's masterpiece. The film would be a hit across the world, selling, selling more than 2.1 million tickets in Germany and over 860,000 tickets in France. In America, the film would gross $3.1 million throughout the fall and winter, which would become the highest-grossing Spanish movie in the country until Orion Classics would release Pedro Almodovar's Woman on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown five years later. Three years before Oliver Stone tackled the Salvadoran conflict, Canadian filmmaker Roger Spottiswood directed Gene Hackman, Nick Nolte, and Joanna Cassidy in the Nicaraguan Revolution-themed Under Fire, inspired by the murder of ABC reporter Bill Stewart and his translator Juan Espinoza, by Nicaraguan National Guard troops on June 20, 1979, the movie was one of two movies about this incident. The other movie, called Last Plane Out, was produced by Roger Corman's New World Pictures and was originally co-written by former Nicaraguan dictator Anastasio Somoza, whose 12-year dictatorial regime was ended due to the murders of Stewart and Espinoza. And Last Plane Out would actually beat Under Fire to theaters, coming out on September 23rd, four weeks before Under Fire's October 21st debut. 
Under Fire would have the better cast, including Ed Harris, Richard Masseur, and the first English-language movie appearance by the great French actor Jean-Louis Trontinon, and would be the first credited screenplay for Ron Shelton, who will be getting a lot of love in an upcoming Orion episode. But the film would befall the same fate as other recent international political dramas by, like The Year of Living Dangerously and Missing. Great reviews and an Oscar nomination, but not a hit. The $9.5 million movie would only gross about $1.8 million from 816 screens opening weekend, on the way to about $5.7 million after four weeks. All right, now, what do Treasure of the Four Crowns, Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone, Jaws 3, The Man Who Wasn't There, and Metal Storm, The Destruction of Jared Sin, all have in common? They were all really bad movies that helped kill off the 1981 to 1983 3D craze, and they were all released before Amityville 3D. Also known as Amityville 3 The Demon, this entry into the Amityville cinematic universe had one thing going for it that all those other films I mentioned did not have. A director, Richard Fleischer, who had made a 3D movie before, 1953's Arena, starring Gig Young and future MASH star Harry Morgan, which was billed then as the first 3D Western. But it would be too little too late. Although the film would open in the number one spot when it grossed $2.4 million from 1,254 theaters the weekend November 18th, the $6 million film would only gross about $6.3 million when Orion stopped tracking it in early December. Their last film of the year, released on December 15th, would be the studio's best hope for a hit and for awards glory that year. Martin Cruz Smith's Gorky Park would become a major bestseller when it hit bookstores in early 1981. Producers Gene Kirkwood and Howard W. Koch Jr. would spend $250,000 to acquire the movie rights to the book a month after its release. They would hire Midnight Cowboy director John Schlesinger to direct and Pennies from Heaven writer Dennis Potter to adapt the book. But there were some... problems. Schlesinger would leave the project to work on another movie, which we'll discuss later in this episode, and the Soviet Union would protest the production of the movie, which they felt promoted negative stereotypes of the Soviets and the Communist Party. Producers Kirkwood and Koch would go after Al Pacino for the lead role of Moscow police detective Arkady Renko, then Dustin Hoffman, before settling on William Hurt. The role of American fur importer Jack Osborne was first offered to Cary Grant, who chose to stay retired from acting, and then offered to Burt Lancaster, before the producers settled on Lee Marvin. They pursued Roman Polanski for the role of Professor Andreev before settling on Emperor Palpatine himself, Ian McDiarmid. The cast would be rounded out with Richard Griffith, Joanna Pecula making her film debut, and Brian Dennehy as a New York detective in Moscow looking for his lost brother. Michael Apted would be brought in to direct the $15 million film, which would shoot in Finland and Sweden in the early winter of 1983, because the Russian government was still not happy about the film and were not going to let their production shoot anywhere in their country. 
backed by a lavish and and expensive advertising budget, the film would befall the same fate as other recent international political dramas like The Year of Living Dangerously, Missing and Under Fire. Good reviews, but little public interest. The film would open in 13th place with $1.3 million from 629 theaters, well behind other new movies that weekend, like the John Travolta, Olivia Newton, John Bomb, Two of a Kind, the war drama Uncommon Valor, the first theatrical re-release of The Rescuers, the extremely unfunny Joel Schumacher comedy DC Cab, and the even less funny Burt Reynolds-led remake of Francois Truffaut's The Man Who Loved Women. But hey, it did beat Silkwood! Although, to be fair, it only beat Silkwood by like $62,000. And Silkwood is only playing in about 257 theaters that weekend. Gorky Park would pick up a little bit of business during the Christmas New Year's break, but it would leave theaters in early February, having only grossed $15.8 million. And it would not garner any Oscar nominations. In, in fact, only two Orion movies would garner nominations for 1983. Zelig would be nominated for Best Cinematography and Best Costume Design, and Under Fire would be nominated for Best Score. Their first release of 1984, Scandalous, would be the worst movie of the year for any other company that year. But for Orion in 1984, it would be their second or third worst movie of the year. The movie featured Robert Hayes of airplane fame as an American investigative reporter who travels to London while working on an espionage story. You've got a supporting cast that includes M. Emmett Walsh, Pamela Stevenson, Jim Dale, and Sir John Gilgood, and a screenplay co-written by the late, great Larry Cohen based on his own play. So what could possibly go wrong? Rob Cohen. Now, I'm not judging Rob Cohen as a person, I've never met the man, and I have no beef with him. As an up-and-coming producer in the 1970s, he had a hand in making several hit films, including Mahogany, Thank God It's Friday, The Wiz, and a personal favorite from my childhood, the bingo-long-traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings. His first film as a director was A Small Circle of Friends, a not-very-good drama about three Harvard students in the late 1960s, starring Karen Allen and Brad Davis. Scandalous would be his second directorial debut, and his first comedy, and his last comedy. When asked about the movie years later, Larry Cohen was quoted as saying he found the film to be utterly dismal. Critics and audiences, or at least those who ventured to see it, agreed. From 144 theaters on its opening weekend of January 20th, the movie would only gross about $275,000. Orion would stop tracking the movie after its second weekend with a final reported gross of just $526,000. After Scandalous, it would be another nine years before Rob Cohen would direct another movie, the Bruce Lee biopic Dragon. But he would finally make his mark as a director in 2001 when he directed the first Fast and Furious movie. Orion would release their second Woody Allen movie in six months on January 27th, the black-and-white comedy Broadway Danny Rose. The story is framed as a series of flashbacks, 
when a group of comics having lunch at the Carnegie Deli tell stories about a talent agent who found himself on the run from the mob. For the role of lounge singer Lou Canova, who would become Danny's biggest star, Alan was considering either Robert De Niro or Sylvester Stallone, but in the end he would cast Lou Apollo Forte, a lounge singer basically playing himself. It's one of Alan's best movies, but like most Alan movies, the $8 million movie would do very well opening in limited release in major cities, $953,000 from 109 screens, and then drop off once it went wider. Broadway Danny Rose would expand to 613 theaters on February 17th, and it would gross a respectable $2.1 million, but by the end of seven weeks in theaters, the film would have grossed only $10.6 million total. The Orion Classics Division would, re- would release their first movie of the year on February 1st. Scrubbers was a low-budget British movie about two teenage girls in a youth detention center who escape the center for different reasons, but end up not exactly getting what they hoped for. It would be the sixth film produced by George Harrison's Handmade Films production company. And it's a brutal film to watch. The film would open at the Film Forum in New York City, close two weeks later, and apparently not play at any other theater in America. The first Orion picture of March would be the Paul Newman-directed Harry and Son, This would be the fourth of five movies Newman would direct, and the only one he would write. He would star as a widowed, hard-working construction worker in South Florida who has trouble connecting with his son, who just wants to surf and chase girls while he dreams of becoming the next great American writer. And of course, Joanne Woodward is in there as Newman's would-be love interest. And the supporting cast would include Ellen Barkin, Wolford Brimley, Ossie Davis, Morgan Freeman, and Judith Ivey. So why the hell is this movie so bad? There's two reasons. One, Newman the screenwriter couldn't help but overload the story with too many complications and too many interconnected relationships with too many big emotional scenes. So most every scene feels like a big third act reveal. And the second is Newman's choice to play his son, Robbie Benson. If you listened to our previous episode, you know how I feel about Robbie Benson, and those concerns brought up before are the same here. He's just not good enough an actor to stand on his own with the likes of Newman and Woodward and Barkin and the rest. The $16 million Harry and Son would be a major misstep in the latter part of Newman's career. Opening on March 2nd in 920 theaters, the film opened in ninth place with only $1.9 million in ticket sales. Orion stopped tracking it after week three and a $4.86 million gross. The following week, March 9th, saw the release of Tony Richardson's adaptation of John Irving's wonderful novel, The Hotel New Hampshire. Richardson, an Oscar winner for directing Tom Jones 22 years earlier, had made nearly 20 movies during that time, and he hadn't really had a hit in all that time. Hopes were high that the film could do as least as well as the previous Irving adaptation, The World According to Garp, which had come out two years earlier, and with a cast that included Bo Bridges, Wilford Brimley again, Jodie Foster, Natasha Kinski, Rob Lowe, and Wallace Shawn, that shouldn't have been too much to expect. But maybe the storyline, about a family that continues on despite a series of adversities that befall them, was too melancholy for ticket buyers. 
As a fan of Irving in general and Hotel New Hampshire specifically, I was excited to see the movie when it came out. But the problem was, Richardson held Irving's text in such high esteem that the film ended up being too faithful an adaptation of the book's major plot points while cutting many of the smaller details that made the book such a rich read. When it comes to John Irving, the devil really is in the details, which is why several subsequent Irving adaptations, such as Simon Birch and The Door in the Floor, would only concentrate on sections of the book they were adapting and adopt new titles that didn't directly reference the source novels. Now, I love the Hotel New Hampshire, as did a good number of critics of the day, but the film would fail to connect commercially. The $7.5 million film would only open in 244 theaters its opening weekend, grossing barely more than a million dollars. It would never open in any more theaters, and it would shed the few theaters it was playing very slowly until it played out with a $5.1 million gross after two months. Their April 6th release, Up the Creek, would be the worst movie of the year for any other company that year. But for Orion in 1984, it would be their second or third worst movie of the year. A group of college students, played by then 36-year-old Tim Matheson, then 28-year-old Dan Monahan, then 29-year-old Stephen First, and then 33-year-old Sandy Helberg, who are, are blackmailed, I mean recruited, to compete in a raft race by the dean of their school. It's an embarrassment for everyone involved. One reviewer for the Washington Post called the film a, quote, moist smut movie, unquote, and noted the best performance in the film was given by a dog. The film would open on 1,346 screens and would gross a respectable $3.2 million, but it would quickly shed theaters, losing half of its original screens by week three. But thanks to drive-ins and dollar houses, the film would linger like a bad cough for months, eventually grossing $11.7 million. Orion Classics would release two movies into theaters the following week, Friday, April 13th. The first was a British comedy, Privates on Parade. Now, if a member of Monty Python wanted to get a film made in the 1980s, they could always turn to Beatle George Harrison and his Handmade Film Production Company. Of the 21 movies Handmade would produce during the 1980s, five of them would be written by, directed by, and or starring at least one member of the Python troupe. Privates on Parade is a silly farce about a mostly gay British song and dance troupe sent to Malaysia to entertain the troops in 1947, who also have to deal with their Bible-thumping commanding officer played by John Cleese. The film didn't do very well in theaters, with most people who love the film discovering it via home video and repeated plays on HBO. The second Orion Classics film from April, April 13th was Yuzan Palsy's stunning debut feature, Sugar Cane Alley. Born in Martinique, Palsy would move to Paris at age 17 to study film. By the time she was 22, she was friends with Francois Truffaut, who encouraged her to return to her home country to make her first movie, a drama about blacks working in the sugar fields in 1930s Martinique who are treated harshly by their white employers. It was beautiful, and it was brutal, and while it didn't set box office records, Marlon Brando saw the movie and would help set Palsy up 
to become the first black woman to direct a Hollywood studio feature, the only female director to ever direct Brando, the first black director to direct any actor to an Oscar nomination, the first black director to win a Cesar Award, the French equivalent of the Oscars, and the first black director to win an award at the Venice Film Festival, which she would all do in 1989 with a dry white season. Brando was the actor she directed the Oscar nomination, his eighth and last, and Brando was so moved by Palsy as a filmmaker and as a person committed to social change that he agreed to do the film for free. So if you've never seen Sugar Cane Alley, find it after you're done listening to this podcast. Most of us know the story of the mutiny on the bounty, not from the various books about the subject, but the various movies about it. Most of us have seen either the 1935 version featuring Clark Gable, Charles Lawton, and Franchot Tone, or the 1962 version featuring Marlon Brando, Richard Harris, and Trevor Howard. Fewer of us have seen the 1984 version featuring Edward Fox, Mel Gibson, Anthony Hopkins, and Sir Laurence Olivier. The adaptation was originally developed by director David Lean and screenwriter Robert Bolt, who had previously worked together on Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, and Ryan's Daughter, and they sought to split the story into two movies. The first would detail the voyage of the bounty to Tahiti and the mutiny that occurred, while the second film would detail the lives of the mutineers after their actions and the response from the British Admiralty upon learning of the mutiny. Lean thought he could make both films for $40 million, but producer Bernard Williams, who was hired by Italian producer Dano De Laurentiis to guide the production, would budget the first movie alone at $40 million. De Laurentiis had already built a large production facility in Tahiti for his production of the 1979 movie Hurricane, which included a brand new hotel for cast and crew to stay at, and he had already spent $4 million building a replica of the HMS Bounty. Overall, he had already sunk more than $6 million into the production, including hiring Hopkins to play the role of Captain Bly. But Bolt would have a major heart attack in April 1979 before completing the second screenplay, and Lean would leave the project soon thereafter. De Laurentiis would spend years trying to find the right director to take over the project. He finally found that person in Australian filmmaker Roger Donaldson. Because who else would you get to direct a massive production taking place on a giant ship at sea than a filmmaker whose combined budgets for his previous three movies wouldn't even get Marlon Brando on a regular set for one afternoon? Donaldson would grow into a fine filmmaker and he does an admirable job for his first time working a big-budget film. And the reviews were mostly positive for the film, noting how much closer to the real history of Christian and Bly the film hewed than the previous efforts. But critics were not kind to Mel Gibson's portrayal of Fletcher Christian, especially in comparison to Gable and Brando's previous characterizations. Audiences wouldn't care. The bounty would open on 986 screens on May 4th, and would gross just $2.6 million. It would be gone from theaters after a month, with a final total of $8.6 million. From time to time, two companies will rush to get their movies with similar story ideas 
into theaters before the other. In the summer of 1988, we had two competing killer asteroid movies, Deep Impact and Armageddon, followed in the fall by two competing CG animated movies about bugs, ants, and a bug's life. In 2004, we had competing Mandy Moore and Katie Holmes movies about first daughters tired of their overbearing fathers. In 2013, we had competing comedies about the end of the world, one called The World's End, and one called This is the End. And a few years ago, there would even be competing documentaries about canon films. In the summer of 1984, it was competing breakdancing movies. Canon would hit theaters first on May 4th with Break-In, which would spawn the quickie sequel with the greatest movie title of all time, Break-In 2 Electric Boogaloo. Orion would deliver Beat Street to theaters five weeks later on June 8th. One reason why it came out later? Producer Harry Belafonte. Beat Street had a higher profile than Break-In because of the beloved entertainer, and Beat Street would be invited to screen out of competition at the 1984 Cannes Film Festival. Beat Street, which featured live performances from the likes of Grandmaster Melly Mel and the Furious Five, Dougie Fresh, Africa Bambata and Soul Sonic Force, and the Treacherous Three, would also help introduce hip-hop culture to other countries, especially in West Germany and East Germany, which were still divided at the time. It would also be the first American movie to have more than one soundtrack album produced to help promote it. The albums each went gold, but Breakin' would beat Beat Street at the box office. Breakin' would open number one its opening weekend, making more than $6 million, against other new movies like Sixteen Candles and the Bounty, while Beat Street would open in sixth place with $5.2 million from 1,380 screens against other new movies like you know, Ghostbusters and Gremlins. Beat Street would finish with $16.6 million, less than half of Breakin's $38.6 million total. June 24th would see Orion Classics releasing the British drama Another Country. Rupert Ebert would star as Guy Burgess, a real-life Brit who became a spy for the Russians in the 1930s after realizing his homosexuality would hinder his chances of becoming a British diplomat. But most people today will watch this movie because of Everett's co-star, Colin Firth, who was 23 and making his feature debut. The $2.5 million film would not find much success in theaters outside of New York City or Los Angeles. Now, a couple times already this episode, you've heard me mention a certain title would be the worst movie of the year for any other company than Orion in 1984. Cheech and Chong's The Corsican Brothers which opened on July 27th, is Orion's worst movie of the year, without question. It's about as far from everything that made Cheech and Chong, well, Cheech and Chong, as as they could get. The guys play twin brothers, Louis and Lucien, who can feel each other's pain and pleasure as they mess up the French Revolution. It might be based on a classic novel by Dumas, But this sure isn't a classic. I mean, why even bother using the names Cheech and Chong in the title if you're making a PG comedy? There is some silly BDSM innuendo thanks to an evil character named Fakir, but it's quite tame for a Cheech and Chong movie. 
The film would not be well received by critics or by audiences. The $10 million movie would open on 868 screens and gross a paltry $1.6 million and would disappear three weeks later after having only made $3.7 million total. You know what else would disappear? Cheech and Chong. After filming Martin Scorsese's After Hours and releasing an album in early 1985, the duo would split up. Now, very rarely outside of Christmas or the 4th of July do films open outside of a Friday or a Wednesday. But for some strange reason, Orion Classics decided to open their movie Stranger's Kiss on a non-holiday Monday in late summer, August 13th to be specific. Directed by Matthew Chapman, the great-great-grandson of Charles Darwin, Stranger's Kiss would be the first movie that would dramatize the making of a Stanley Kubrick movie, Killer's Kiss in this case. You know you have to stretch the suspension of disbelief to accept Peter Coyote as Stanley Kubrick, but overall the film is an interesting experiment. Gene Siskel would give the movie four stars, but the film would only play in a handful of theaters in major markets. Two days later, on August 15th, Orion released another stinker of a movie, The Woman in Red. Gene Wilder starred in, wrote, and directed this remake of the 1976 French movie An Elephant Can Be Extremely Deceptive, which was released in America with the more benign title Pardon Mon Affaire. This would be the second crappy American remake of a pretty good French movie produced by Victor Dry after the previous year's Tom Hanks movie The Man with One Red Shoe. Wilder's married San Francisco ad man becomes obsessed with a beautiful woman in a red dress. That's it. That's the movie. Now, granted, Kelly LeBrock, in her feature film debut, was stunning, disturbingly beautiful. And thanks to the newly minted PG-13 rating, horny teenage boys got to see a lot more of Miss LeBrock than they may have even two months earlier. Which is kind of problematic since the movie was produced by her brand new husband, Victor Dry. But audiences don't really care about all that stuff. And honestly, audiences didn't really care about the movie. It would open in ninth place with $3.1 million on 1,065 screens on its way to a, eh, okay, $25.3 million gross. But the movie's biggest offense was unleashing one of the worst songs to ever be awarded, the Academy Award for Best Song. I just call to say I love you. I just call to say how much. Enough of that. Ryan Classic's next movie would be Marissa Silver's Old Enough. The daughter of pioneering 1970s New York director Joan Micklin Silver. Marissa Silver was just 23 when she made her directing debut here, telling the story about a friendship between two young girls, a streetwise teen from the lowest of the lower middle class, and an 11-year-old from a wealthy upper-class family. The film was a family affair, having been produced by Marissa's older sister, Dinah, and it would be one of the first American movies to be shot by Michael Ballhaus. 
The movie got fantastic reviews from the likes of Judith Christ and Bruce Williamson, but it was too small a movie for most audiences to care about, and with a PG rating, too tame to be any kind of controversial. If anyone sees it today, it's mostly because the film would be the very first screen appearance by a then 11-year-old Alyssa Milano. The film would open on August 24th and would have disappeared by the time the next Orion Classics movie opened. That movie, Full Moon in Paris, would arrive in theaters on September 7th. It would be the fourth film in Eric Romer's Comedies and Proverbs series. Although Pauline at the Beach would be the third movie in that series, Full Moon in Paris is not a sequel, and the two films would not share any actors or characters. This time, a young woman named Louise tries to live a double life, one as half of a happily paired couple living a quiet life in a Parisian suburb, and one as a single woman with a small apartment in the center of Paris. I love Paris. It's my favorite big city. And I would love to say that as a 16-year-old, I fell in love with the city thanks to an Eric Romer movie. But Full Moon in Paris never came to Santa Cruz. Like a number of Orion classic movies, it would only play in the big cities, and I wasn't mature enough yet to drive 75 miles each way from Santa Cruz to San Francisco just to see a movie. Plus, I had just crashed my car, a late 70s AMC Spirit, the week before the movie opened. Now, if my buddy Dick wasn't driving, it was school buses and city buses to and fro. The third Orion Classics movie to be, re- to be released in a four-week period would be Volker Schlorndorf's Swan in Love. Adapted from the first volume of Marcel Proust's epic series In Search of Lost Time, Jeremy Irons stars as Charles Swan, a well-off bachelor in turn-of-the-century Paris, who falls in love with a beautiful courtesan played by Ornella Muti. It's not easy summarizing Proust, as Monty Python once taught us, which is part of the problem with the movie. One cannot just produce a satisfying 110-minute-long movie based on a 468-page book overflowing with rich detail. Schlondorf does his best, as do Irons and Muti, and any movie that's smart enough to bring the great Elaine Delon on board, even if it's only for about 10 minutes total screen time, isn't all that bad. It's also a gorgeous movie thanks to the services of cinematographer Sven Nykvist. But it wouldn't be a huge success either in the States, in most of France, or anywhere else in the world. A French movie fan site estimates the film's worldwide gross to be about $6 million, which more than half of that coming from Parisian movie theaters alone. But you know what would be a huge success in the States, in most of France, and everywhere else in the world? Peter Schaeffer's Amadeus, which tells a story of the rivalry between composer Antonio Salieri and Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, was first presented on the London stages in 1979 with Paul Schofield as Salieri and Simon Callow as Mozart. After the first preview performance at the Royal National Theatre in London, director Milos Forman approached Schaefer to make a movie version. 
By 1981, Foreman had gotten Saul's Ants, who also produced Foreman's 1975 Best Picture winner, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, to finance the film. By the end of 1982, conductor Neville Mariner had already recorded the soundtrack to the movie so Foreman could play the music for the actors during filming so they could match the performances. Foreman was all over the place when it came to potential casting. For the lead role of Salieri, Foreman's first choice was John Savage. When Savage passed, Foreman auditioned Mick Jagger for the role before deciding on F. Murray Abraham. For Mozart, Animal House co-star Tom Hulse was chosen over David Bowie and Mikhail Baryshnikov. Patti LuPone was considered for the role of Constance Mozart before Meg Tilly was cast, but then Tilly got hurt before filming her scenes, so Elizabeth Barrage was brought in three months after filming began. Filming lasted half a year all throughout Czechoslovakia throughout the spring and summer of 1983, the first time Foreman would shoot in his home country in 17 years. After being scheduled for February 15th, the $18 million movie would finally get released on September 19th. In only 25 theaters, the film grossed a cool half million dollars, as it would the second weekend on as many screens. The film would continue to do well throughout the fall and winter, and would become something of a phenomenon. Orion got the word out about the movie any way they could. They would even cut a music video for MTV for Mozart's Symphony 25 in G minor, featuring David Lee Roth as a conductor, along with scenes from videos with David Bowie, Michael Jackson, Madonna, Bruce Springsteen, and Van Halen. The film's soundtrack would reach number one on the Billboard pop music charts, which no classical music album have a, had achieved before and has not achieved since. And when the Academy Award nominations for the year were announced in February of 1985, the movie would be tied with David Lean's A Passage to India for the most nominations with 11, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Leading Actor nods for both Tom Hulse and F. Murray Abraham, and several... several technical categories. When the winners were announced on March 25th, Amadeus would be the big winner with eight. Lead actor for Abraham, art direction, costume design, directing, makeup, sound, best adapted screenplay, and best picture of the year. It wouldn't be until early April when Amadeus would finally play in 800 theaters, enough to be considered a wide release at the time. And then when all was said and done in mid-August of 1985, the film would gross more than $51.5 million. Their next film wouldn't be quite as popular. Heartbreakers is a rather apathetic drama about two 30-something playboys in Los Angeles. It stars Peter Coyote and Nick Mancuso, and would be the final screen appearance of Carol Wayne, best known as the matinee lady in a series of skits on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. The $2.2 million movie would open on 72 screens on September 28th and would gross most of its 149000 total gross during those first three days. We spent a good amount of time talking about The Terminator in Episode 9, which hopefully you've listened to before. It's still a killer film, and its creation really did help change the course of film history. 
the last Orion film for 1984 would, like Amadeus, be a big production from an Oscar-winning filmmaker. But unlike Amadeus, Francis Ford Coppola's The Cotton Club would not be a major success with critics or audiences. Not that the formula wasn't there. The film, which would tell a fictional story of the people who worked at the famed Harlem nightclub during the 1930s, was being produced by Robert Evans, who had hired Coppola to make The Godfather, and was written by Coppola, Godfather novelist Mario Puzo, and William Kennedy, who in 1984 would win a Pulitzer Prize for his novel Ironweed. And Cotton Club had a cast so deep, one could never, ever get a cast like this for a movie again. Got Richard Gere, Diane Lane, Gregory Hines, Lonette McKee, Nicolas Cage, Bill Cobbs, Joe D'Alessandro, Lawrence Fishburne, Alan Garfield, Jennifer Grey, Fred Gwynn, Bob Hoskins, James Remar, John P. Ryan, Diane Venora, Gwen Verdon, and Tom Waits. Are you fucking kidding me? That's the 1927 New York Yankees of movie casts. The 95-96 Chicago Bulls of movie casts. The 1984 San Francisco 49ers of movie casts. The 76-77 Montreal Canadiens of movie casts. But even with that cast and those writers, and that producer, and that director, the whole endeavor was a complete mess. The original $25 million budget spiraled out of control, eventually topping $47 million, or $58 million, or $65 million, depending on who you speak with. Between Puzo, Kennedy, and Coppola, nearly 40 drafts of the screenplay were created. One of the financiers for the movie was murdered during the production by a drug dealer associate of his who believed that she was being cut out of the profits for the film. But there would be no profits. When the film finally opened on December 14th in 808 theaters, it would only gross about $2.9 million. The film would play into early spring, ending its run with $25.9 million in total ticket sales, but that would not be the end of the story. In 2015, Coppola found an old Betamax tape with a copy of his original cut of the film. Desperately in debt due to his excesses while making one from the heart and in need of the hit, he had nearly cut a half an hour from the film before its release. After discovering the tape, a now more financially stable Coppola would spend nearly half a million dollars restoring the Cotton Club back into its original cut. The new-slash-old 139-minute version, now called the Cotton Club Encore, would be released into theaters and on video in the fall of 2019 and would earn far better reviews in the modern day than it ever did in, in its initial release. Now, there are many reasons to watch either version of the Cotton Club, from the cinematography and the production design to the incredible show set pieces featuring Gregory Hines and his brother Maurice as dancing brothers who bear more than a passing resemblance to Fayard and Harold Nicholas, and the musical pieces featuring Lynette McKee as a singer not unlike Lena Horne, but the restored version is the superior version. The Orion movies of 1984 would be well represented at the 57th Academy Awards. In addition to Amadeus' 11 nominations and 8 wins, 
Broadway Danny Rose would get Allen his third nomination for Best Director and fourth nomination for Best Original Screenplay, and The Cotton Club would get nods for Best Art Direction and Best Editing. And that's going to wrap it up for this second episode of our look back at Orion Pictures. 33 movies over two years. And our next episode will be covering more than 40 Orion releases just from 1985 and 1986. Rosanna Arquette will desperately seek Madonna. Mia Farrow needs to choose between Jeff Daniels and Jeff Daniels. The Living Dead will return. Remo Williams' adventures will begin and end. Brian Dennehy learns about makeup effects. Rodney Dangerfield goes back to school. David Bowie is featured in the most British movie ever made to that point. Jeff Daniels, Melanie Griffith, and Ray Liotta are something wild. Gene Hackman coaches a bunch of Hoosiers. Chevy Chase, Steve Martin, and Martin Short are friends. Three friends. And Oliver Stone shows the right director can make an actor out of Charlie Sheen. It should make for an exciting show. Thank you for listening. The Film Jerk Podcast has been written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens. As we are an independent podcast without sponsors or a network of websites to help promote the show, we rely on word of mouth to get the word out about the show. And please, help get the word out. Please post about the Film Jerk Podcast on your socials. Please, rate and review the show on your favorite podcast source. Good ratings and reviews help get the podcast higher rankings, which help the show get seen by more potential listeners. And as always, I look forward to your comments about the show. You can leave me a note on this podcast page at filmjerk.com, or you can leave me a message on my Twitter feeds at Edward A. Havens or at Filmjerk. The Filmjerk podcast has been a production of Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. Answers, art, announcements, it's all